Hello everyone and welcome back to The Bridgehead. My name is Jonathan Van Maren and thanks so much for joining us again this week. So a lot of you have been probably following the craziness in the news over the whole trans ideology and it seems like there's a new development on this front almost every day. So in Britain there was a baby born to a transgender man who could become the first person without a legal mother. Alberta just decided to insert a non-binary option on its government identification, basically saying that uh, they wanted to allow people who were trans or questioning or didn't know some measure of privacy, which kind of defeats the purpose of government identification as far as I know. I hadn't realized that privacy was one of the purposes of government identification, and I thought that the whole point of listing identifying characteristics was so that the person carrying said identification could be identified. But apparently I'm wrong because the state of Maine has now done the same thing this week. They've also decided to uh, have a non-binary option. Keep in mind here that nobody really knows what non-binary is. It, it's beyond the whole trans ideology, which stipulated that there are men born in women's bodies and women born in men's bodies, and they should be allowed to transition uh, to their actual gender as opposed to their biological gender. Non-binary is just this idea that gender is fluid, and so people can more or less decide whatever they want to be. I noticed that one of my friends, who was a, a gay activist back in the day, commented on the trans issue saying, uh, that one of the reasons trans rights were so important is that sex is an immutable characteristic. Well, the entire point of the trans ideology is that nothing is immutable anymore. This is gender fluidity. There is literally a guy in Britain who had an admiring article written about him in a major British newspaper who decides what gender he is every morning. He's got one, clo one closet for male clothes, he's got one closet for female clothes, and each morning he decides what he's going to wear, and his extremely tolerant girlfriend is apparently okay with having her sexuality become as fluid as his gender apparently is. And so I noticed uh, an article in Commentary Magazine called The War on Bathroom Privacy by Sohrab Amari, and it's, it was a really brilliant article, so I wanted to have a discussion with him, and, and he was kind enough to, to make some time to chat about uh, a case, and I'm not going to spoil too many details of that case because <clears throat> this is what he's on the show to talk about, but he's written a, a couple of books, or he's working on one, and he wrote a book called uh, The New Philistines, which basically described how identity politics was corrupting the arts. He's uh, of Iranian descent. He's also co he was co-edited a book in 2012 called Arab Spring Dreams, which is an anthology of essays by Middle Eastern dissidents. And now he, he's written for a wide range of different publications, the Boston Globe, the Wall Street Journal, uh, the New Republic, and now, of course, uh, Commentary. So he agreed to come on uh, the show and kind of talk about the latest developments in the trans ideology, the trans, uh, the trans war on reality, essentially. And I hope you enjoy that conversation as much as I did. So first and foremost, could you give our listeners a bit of an idea of what the, the sort of trans culture war is all about in the United States? Jonathan, I think the trans culture war is fundamentally about um, our understanding of human nature mm. and how much capacity uh, we as a society, Americans, ha believe we have to change something that is so fundamental about human biology that both uh, 
the science of biology and uh, thousands of years of moral tradition, Judeo-Christian and actually Muslim as well moral tradition, tell us about who men and women are. Um, and so that's really the battle line is, is on the one hand, it's, an, it's the next um, conflict since the legalization of gay marriage. That's the immediate cultural context, but at its heart is this metaphysical, really ontological question about um, human sexuality, human bodies, and whether or not it's possible for mental states to override biological and natural realities. And to what extent is the transgender ideology actually taking root at the population at large? I know that uh, academia has to a large extent bought into this. Uh, most of the yeah. politicians on the progressive left have. I see the state of Maine yeah. uh, just started to offer non-binary options on a driver's license. That's also just happened yeah. here in Canada and the province of Alberta. But what I get a sense of is that there are a lot of journalists and a lot of, of, of people who were very firmly in the liberal camp, at least here in Canada, mm. who were totally okay with Joe marrying Bob, but would not be sold on the idea that Bob could become Susan. What's your feel of how people are accepting this ideology, or is this a top-down imposition? Look, um, I mean, who knows what's happening at the level of the, what's bubbling at the level of individual people or I'm certainly not a not a pollster but what I would say is this that I do agree that I think even among liberals who embrace gay marriage some of this gender stuff is a bridge too far now they would never dare say it let's say at a cocktail party in in Manhattan right uh, uh, they wouldn't say they would never dare say it out loud but you could hear them maybe say it in a sort of whisper like I don't know about this stuff right. But the movement is so powerful uh, culturally. I mean, the pressure is so intense that I think a lot of people will fall into line. And Rod Dreher, who's a great writer at the American Conservative and yes. a friend of mine, uh, has compared it to, you know, Václav Havel, the Czech dissident, wrote about the green grocer, right? The green grocer in mm -hmm. communist Czechoslovakia would, would put forward a sign on his, on his lawn that said, um, workers of the world unite. And the whole point is he doesn't believe that the state, the communist state by that point didn't believe that. Everyone knew it was a cynical lie, but he just put it up there because if you didn't say that, they wouldn't leave you alone. Right. Um, so the, the people are living in a lie. And I think that something like that is happening here. It's, we're not living in a co communist state. We still have freedom of speech and also sorts of other constitutional guarantees. But there is a cultural pressure that kind of resembles that green grocer phenomenon where you're supposed to publicly affirm something that most people deep down know and believe, and, and my suspicion is that even trans people themselves know that that they're not women if they're men or that they're not men you know whichever gender that I have to identify with that gap is there in their own minds and I've been doing some research and reading about it and I, and I think it's it's uh, it's obvious to everyone but cultural pressure is so strong that no one dares say the truth or few dare to say the right. truth let's say i mean in canada where you live uh, the pressure is, is there's a legal component right it's uh if you use the wrong pronoun you could theoretically face legal censure 
theoretically, uh, yes, you're correct. That, that kind of brings me right into uh, part of the topic I wanted to tackle. Here in Canada, as most people internationally now know, simply due to the fact that Dr. Jordan Peterson of the University of Toronto announced that he wouldn't be using those pronouns, uh, and the, the gender ideologues tried to you know sort of pull the bushwhacking on him that they had successfully done to <coughs> others, and instead he got rich and famous. So they're still trying to figure out what that means for their movement here in Canada, but the language wars mm -hmm. haven't really cropped up since that sort of very catastrophic defeat uh, for their language policing here in Canada. But in, in the United States, and mm -hmm. this is why I had initially contacted you to talk, is the, the, the battle over the trans ideology seems to center more around bathrooms than language at this point. And you wrote this uh, like fantastic column called The War on Bathroom uh, Privacy, where you talk about a 19-year-old girl named Alexis Lightcap who's sort of spearheading yeah. this, this youth-led movement against, uh, well, it's, it's kind of ridiculous when you think about it, for the right to basically go to the bathroom and change without the presence of the opposite sex being there. It sounds bizarre. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what this story is all about. Sure. So Alexis Lightcap is, uh, as you said, is a 19-year-old African-American uh, high school student. She just actually graduated from high school last week so congratulations to her but um in 2016 when i suppose she was a junior in high school um she went into the bathroom uh, the girls restroom to wash up and change what have you and as soon as she opened the door she was struck by a figure of a, of a male figure an obviously male mm. figure standing there using the women's bathroom and she was shocked and sort of frozen place at first and then she ran out um, and actually, there's the, the security camera footage is there where you suddenly see the look of horror in her face as she runs out of the bathroom. So she went to her favorite teacher and she told the teacher. The teacher was concerned and said, you know, you're right. Let's go talk to the principal. They go and address this to the principal and the principal says, oh, yeah, that's the new policy. Uh, you know, you guys need to deal with it. If someone identifies with the opposite sex, they can use the opposite sex bathroom. And, you know, try to make it as natural as possible, but this is the new policy. And the, neither the student body nor the parents of the school had been informed about this policy change. The only people who were in the know were those students who sought access to opposite-sex bathrooms. It turns out she, had, she wasn't the only one who'd had encounters like this. There were at least five other students, and now they're, they've all sued the, the Pennsylvania school district. It's called Boyerton area school district in, in Pennsylvania, they've, they've sued to uh, essentially have a, you know, challenge this, uh, this bathroom policy. But she's the only one who is publicly, who has been willing to publicly name herself and, and go public. The rest of them are, you know, identified using pseudonyms, John Doe, Joe Doe, so forth. And so what kind of a backlash or positive response uh, has she received for like being brave enough to go public and essentially become yeah. the face of the again this sounds so ridiculous to say but bathroom privacy wars well um, I spoke with her last week and she said that actually I mean yes there, there were some people who made nasty comments about her on Facebook um, and we can get into how, how the legal system so far has received her her challenge uh which is not been positive at all 
But for the most part, she says that lots of people in her high school, and it's a fairly small school district, have written to her saying even people who she never was friends with, you know, she was just sort of barely interacted with them, would suddenly turn to her either in person or on the Internet, and they would say, Alexis, we're so proud of you. Thank you for standing up for that for this issue, and let me know if we can help. So it's not at all been at the, at the popular level. She's not been demonized. I mean, there have been some incidents, on, like I said, on Facebook, but on right. the polls, she's been positively received. It's really the legal system that's been very much uh, met met her uh, her, her plea with, um, with coldness. And what have they been saying? So here in Canada, and I keep uh, fairly close track of what's going on in the United States as well, since I hold citizenships in both countries, yeah. I've noticed that... Uh, your newspapers and our newspapers have both sort of succumbed to this trans idea, and they're basically willing yeah. to use the, the the preferred pronouns of whoever it is that they're speaking to, yes. even if they're it's a plural pronoun like they. We've had some very ridiculous articles in which you have to read it a couple of times just to really understand what they're what they're getting across. Yeah. And so, how has the legal system, <laughs> I guess, responded to uh, to her? Then this was a, a very fundamental part of your piece. Yes. So, so let me lay out what her legal arguments are. It's two. One is they, that they, the students, including Alexis, argue that they have a constitutional right to bodily privacy. And that's embedded in the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the fundamental right to bodily privacy. Uh, and uh, although there's never been any cases directly like this because the transgender issue is relatively new, mm-hmm. in other contexts like correctional contexts or uh, prison contexts and so forth, uh, you know, courts have repeatedly held that Americans have the right um, to a bodily privacy, which includes not to be seen in the nude by uh, members of the opposite sex. So that's right. one argument. The second argument that they make is has to do with Title IX, which is a, is a statute from the 1960s that was intended to give women a leg up or to an, an equal leg, let's say, in in sports and other public institutions. Um, and one of and Title IX specifically included that 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 women need private facilities in sports, locker rooms, and things like that, and that that lack of that kind of facility is de facto sexual harassment because it includes the unwanted presence of the opposite sex even if that presence is not actively harassing you just being kind of vulnerable in front of the opposite sex is itself sexual harassment that's their argument so far both the district court and an appellate court that have ruled on it in a sort of preliminary way they have have rejected those arguments because they say they don't use sex as we understand it as in the gender as sorry i even made it myself the the binary between male and female right. which is written into our dna which manifests itself in in our anatomy and which most people understand as sex not gender as a sort of fluid subjective construct but sex which which is the xy chromosome and the xx chromosome um the, the courts have said no i mean because that policy is applied in an even-handed way, meaning boys who claim to be women can go into the women's restroom, and because women who claim to be men can go into the women's restroom, um, then that means that this, there's no sort of discriminatory uh, element to the law. And they specifically, I mean, the appellate court t- 
took Alexis's lawyers to task for using the term sex. The court, the judges wow. on the bench said, please use, please use gender um, because sex is disrespectful. Wow. So, as, as, I mean, as far as these two courts, a, a federal district court and a federal appeals court, not yet the Supreme Court, are concerned, uh, they bought into the ideology. In a, and they're, in, a, in a way, they're begging the question because the whole debate is over whether gender and sex are the same thing and whether right. those two things can be intentions. So how do you feel about a Supreme Court challenge? Uh, so what's happened now is the, the courts, including the appellate court, has rejected the preliminary injunction. What that would have done is they, it would have put a stop to the policy, the bathroom policy, until um, the underlying litigation went through the court. The court said, no, the policy basically can continue to be in place. But now it kicks back to the district court, or the, the lowest level court, federal court, um, where it'll be, you know, it'll work its way through that court. But obviously it sounds like um, they don't have a shot at the level of that, at the district court level and at the lapel bench. So then whether or not the Supreme Court takes this on, who knows? I mean, one hopes that in the aftermath of Masterpiece Cake Shop, um, which is a kind of minor tactical victory for opponents of the sexual revolution, that this issue will be taken up as well. Um, because really, uh, there's a great deal at stake. And even, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm a social conservative or religious conservative, but I'm tempted to see if feminists will, at least some feminists will come on board with this battle because, for example, this issue of Title IX, which is was this a statute that helps equalize sports right. and many other public activities for women, it wouldn't make sense if it, the, the statute itself presumes that there is a objective public understanding of sex, which has to do with anatomy, with body, with, with DNA. It, does, it won't work. The whole edifice of equal protection and equal opportunity for women will break down if if sex were to be redefined as a mental state and with no sort of objective, publicly identifiable component, it's all just what people internally feel. So I really do wonder if there's going to be a backlash. Um, uh, but so far, you don't certainly you don't see it as, as we spoke at the beginning. You don't see it at the level of the culture. You don't see it at the level of elite institutions and so mm -hmm. forth. But I just imagine it must be bubbling because this stuff is so bizarre and so unnatural. Yeah, well, here in Canada, the, the ugliest battle so far is actually ongoing, and it's between the uh, feminists, mm. uh, the radical feminists specifically, and, and the trans people, which started when uh, a bunch of feminists were disinvited from the Vancouver Women's March after they protested the fact that a trans dominatrix was one of the key speakers. So that's so that's right. fun. And when you talk about this bathroom, I thing, mean, on the one hand, as a as as, as a social conservative, you know, I I, I wish that you know, I I'd, I'd like to think about this as like the Iran Iraq War. Too bad they can't they can't both lose <laughs> yeah. or they can't both win. Yeah, it's kind of like watching the snake <laughs> choke on its own tail. <laughs> but what but, are the, um, what are the things? Because in many ways. In many ways, as now it's it, it's coming back to haunt them. But in many ways, this um, the trans movement is an outgrowth of of kind of radical feminism, queer theory that now has come to come full circle for them, uh, which is why there some of them are fighting back. But 
And now the idea they owe each other more than they imagine. And now the idea of a guy being able to access a girl's bathroom simply by claiming to be a woman that sounds like the kind of thing that would have been in some sort of comedy like stupid comedy movie in the 90s and now it's yeah. a real thing and the pace of change i mean he, the pace of change the, the the stuff they're forcing people and force i think is the right way compelling is the right word compelling people to accept like you said is it, it just um uh, there, there is bound to be a backlash. I just don't know what form it will take, or maybe the backlash is already there. You know, in terms of um, uh, the election of Dom- Donald Trump in the U.S. Not saying it's all because of the trans issue, but from a, a whole way of doing politics at the elite, kind of this high-handed liberal, uh, rapid change of basically accepted notions, rapid sort of demolition of uh, moral tradition people recoil and, and they'll turn to more populist type politicians who will, who they see as a sort of bulwark against these types of uh, changes, but we'll see it. I think this is just beginning. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to leave it there because I know you have another interview to get to, but thanks so much for taking the time to talk about this with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a conversation with Sorab Amari. This podcast has been brought to you by Total Rentals, and I hope that you'll check out our other podcasts. Uh, Last week, we talked to Melissa Odin, who actually survived an abortion. The week before, we got an update on the ground from Northern Ireland, which is attempting to defend its pro-life laws after the May 25 referendum in the Republic of Ireland uh, removed the right of pre-born children to life from the constitution of that country. We can be found at thebridgehead.ca. We are at The Bridgehead on SoundCloud, on iTunes, and on YouTube. Thanks so much for joining us again this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.